0: Today Reconsider, we're very excited to have Lena Corda on. Lena has been a teacher in the San Francisco school system for the last several years, and she just won the Mayor's Teacher of the Year Award for all of San Francisco. So only really one teacher per level, like high school, uh, elementary school, gets this award. Need needs to be nominated by a number of your um, other fellow teachers, and write in, talk about your teaching philosophy, and Lana won this award for the entire city. It was a big deal. She was given the award at Giants Stadium in the middle of a Giants game by the mayor. So we're really excited to hear her insight and her thoughts on the education system and provide some insider perspective about what she thinks is going on right now. Hey, Lena, how are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you. That was a really nice introduction. I feel really special right now. Thank you.
0: Well, hey, it's
3: not just us that's excited. A couple of our listeners got a bit of a sneak peek from me as to who is coming on, and they freaked out. So you got a bunch of fan peoples listening into this right now. So those of you who have been waiting for our interview with Lena, it's
0: finally here. So let's do this. So, Lynn, just before we dig into it, would you, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are right now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I have been teaching for seven years in San Francisco Unified School District at the same school, and it's definitely been the most rewarding and challenging experience of my life. I can't imagine myself doing anything else. Um, and I think kind of like once I got started, I, I knew that that was where I needed to be I never intended on being a teacher. I had no idea what I wanted to do um, when I graduated college. And I don't often tell people this, but for complete transparency, and I think for probably the good of this podcast, I did start with Teach for America. And so that program is very controversial, I feel, at least in the teaching community. I'm kind of one of the oddball core members who actually stayed past their two-year commitment. I've furthered my own education. I'm halfway through my national board, um, which is sort of like the bar for teachers and I, I did pass the first two I'm still working on the last half of it but I think that this is definitely the place for me to be is in the classroom with kids um over the summer I run a summer program with aim high I'm a board member for the teacher salary project um and I'm really excited to be on your show
3: and also an astronaut or something that's quite the cv <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing I didn't even know all that <laughs>
1: Uh, well, I mean, I'm actually glad that you brought up the astronaut part because I do <laughs> – part of the reason I'm so excited to talk to you is because I do have multiple jobs. I'm not just a teacher. I do – I work with the summer program. I'm also a bartender. I host it occasionally. Um, um, part of the huge issue with teaching is is the salary doesn't really cover the expense of living in San Francisco. Um, it, it doesn't support a family – um, if you're working on the pay level that I'm currently at. So I'm glad that you mentioned astronaut. Maybe if they're hiring, I'll look into it. <laughs> yeah,
0: I know you've been on or you've been interviewed before Lana, and you've talked about how challenging it is to get by, at least certainly in San Francisco on, on a teacher's salary. Um, did you find that a lot of your fellow teachers also just need to take all these additional jobs kind of just to get by day to day?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think that there are, I know I know a lot of different teachers that are working with me at the AIM High Summer Program. The reason I have the bartending job is because another teacher recommended it to me. I know teachers who drive Uber. I know teachers who nanny, teachers who tutor after school hours. It's really common to find teachers who are working multiple jobs. Um, I almost feel as if, you know, a lot of comments you get are, well, you have three months off. And I'm saying to myself, well, no, I don't really know people that I don't know very many people that actually take the entire summer off. Most people are either working on their curriculum, going to workshops, working summer school. I know I know quite a few other educators who are working multiple jobs.
0: San Francisco is actually rated one of the lowest median teacher salaries in the country, so adjusted for cost of living. Um, and just like as a point of reference, the, the lowest is Honolulu, highest is Milwaukee. So obviously the cost of living has increased in San Francisco. Do you know if teachers' salaries in in San Francisco have increased at all over the last several years, or has it it always been relatively low? Has this changed recently?
1: It has always been relatively low, something that was in some ways a win, and for me was, I mean, I guess I I kind of sound snobby or something when I say this. We did receive a 12% raise, which is a pretty big chunk of change. It's I think it's installed over the course of four or five years or something. So it's a it's a very gradual increase, which in a way I think is, is really interesting because they know that a lot of teachers are leaving the classroom and they know that they're not really going to have to pay out all of that money because so many people are retiring, so many people are leaving, and the folks who are coming in, of course, are starting at the base level salary. So in, in a way, I think that was kind of a sneaky move to gradually increase it. Um, our teachers' union was asking, I believe, for a 16% raise because keeping up with the cost of inflation, forget the actual percentage, I should have looked at this, but we've technically taken, we've literally actually, I don't want to say technically, we have taken a pay cut um, over the last, I want to say 10, 15 years because of the rise of the cost of living in the the city and adjusted for inflation. So this raise that we were actually asking for was just saying, hey, can you keep our wages up with this increasing cost of living, Um, which I know many other people and many other jobs are also fighting for. This is not something that is only happening with teaching. I know this is happening all over the country in all different jobs. I just think it's pretty sickening that one of the most important jobs in the world that we, you know, people we entrust our children with every single day and the future of our country and the cornerstone of our democracy their wages don't matter. Like we, we don't care about them enough to make sure that they can afford rent or to make sure that they can have a family of their own or to make sure that they don't have to work seven days a week and that they can actually perform their jobs to the best of their ability. My first follow-up
3: question is a technical one that if you don't know the answer, I'll just do the research on, but where does, where does San Francisco school system get its funding? Is it from property taxes?
1: I know it's from a combination of places. Um, this is something that I should also be much more well-versed on. I know that it's state and local funding is part of it. I know that we have government funding as well. I know that we also have companies like Google and Salesforce who are generously donating to our school district um, every single year to provide things like technology, or they come with a lot of, you know, it comes with a lot of red tape. It definitely comes with some guidelines in terms of how that money is to be used, but, I, you know, we would never turn away. or $200,000, we'll do what we need to do. So it definitely comes from a combination of places. Um, I know that we do receive some of a stipend. I think the hard to staff schools, which are schools that are Sixty to seventy percent um, socioeconomically disadvantaged students. They give you, I think it's a thousand or two thousand a year from Prop A, at least in San Francisco. It's Prop A money in an attempt to retain teachers at these schools. But I'm not sure in terms of like where the rest of our funding comes from. I know it's a combination, and, and some of it is different propositions in terms of coming from actual property taxes. Um, I know that there was a change in that over the last, I'm assuming over the last 10 years where it used to, the schools used to have their funding based on property taxes, and now I don't believe that that's the case. Um, That doesn't mean that schools that are in more affluent areas aren't receiving more money. They are because of the people who are there, um, which, of course, I would never begrudge a school all of the money that they're able to raise. That's fantastic. But, you know, in a community where I grew up um, in La Crescenta, your PTSA can probably raise a couple million a year. In my community, my our, a lot of our parents are are struggling to feed their children, and to they're working constantly. So it's a very different amount that you're able to get from the people who are actually attending your school. And so I think there definitely is a different a different level of financial ability there.
3: So you mentioned that you had a lot of kids whose parents were struggling to feed them. What do you think are some of the really unique challenges that a teacher faces? in a school that has a high portion of socioeconomically disadvantaged students?
1: There's definitely a lot of other factors I think that just come with serving youth who are underprivileged and under-resourced. You have a lot higher levels of trauma. We have kids who I want to make sure you know they're homeless or they're in transitional housing. There are a lot of different challenges that way. I don't even know if I would call it a challenge. I don't mean challenge in a bad way. Like I love my kids and I love trying to guide them through and and help them become empowered to deal with whatever their reality is. But you definitely see a lot of kids that the first thing you're going to ask them is like, okay, did you eat breakfast? Have you taken a shower in the last couple of days? Did you brush your teeth? And you're kind of dealing with those basic factors before trying to embark on, okay, now let's work on your multiplication table. The kid cannot possibly come in and learn if they're hungry or if they saw, you know, domestic violence the night before, or if they are themselves being abused. And I think these are in, pretty high levels. I don't have a lot of experience in the private school sector or in a more affluent school, so I don't know what the numbers are for there. I don't at all mean to disparage other communities at all. But I do know that in my experience at my school, we do have very high levels of a lot of that occurring. And so it it definitely takes your teaching in another direction because you're not just their teacher. You're their counselor. You're their mom. You're their, their friend. You're You're wearing so many different hats. And trying to get your kids the resources that they need so that they can then... Move on to succeeding in their education.
0: And what sort of resources do you feel like maybe you're lacking that you would see at other schools that may be more socioeconomically advantaged that would help in your day to day teaching activities? That's a really good
1: question. I'm going to answer that in, I don't know, maybe the opposite way. Something that our kids do have that I want more of um, because it's not enough are just wraparound social services and services for our families and like doctor's appointments and check-ins and things like that, it's oftentimes hard for families to get their kids to these appointments. Or I know a lot of the kids that want to play sports or something and they need a physical, and I know tons of them that don't ever get there before the school year starts. Things like that, if we had people to come on site and perform those. I think it happens maybe once a year with UCSF. I know they come on site and do things like that, but to have more of that more available for the many kids who are in need of that would be pretty changing for them. I think life-changing for them. We do have like you know free and reduced lunch programs, so we do have food for our kids. Even you know they can't afford it, they don't pay. We have a free reduced lunch program. I know the government had put that into place. But I think that those kinds of services, like the socio-emotional services, health services, counseling, so many more of our kids need counseling than we have counselors available for them. Like we have wonderful counselors at our school, but if we had more of them, or if we had more people to come on site and do one-on-one counseling with a lot of our kids that would definitely help them succeed more academically um, or to do family counting with our, with our students and their families um, or, you know, programs that kind of help families get back on their feet. Somebody's lost their job or if they've been evicted or helping them transition into housing after they've lost their home, which is something that's happening quite often in the city right now. I think that would really benefit our kids even more. Um, I'm not aware of the level of resources that, more affluent schools have just because I've I've never worked in one. I know that the buildings themselves, like their facilities are much better. Um, I know that there's a private school in San Francisco that has like state of the art. It costs money to go there, of course, but they've got the most amazing technology and the physical building is beautiful and there's space and there's land and there's grass, and they can go outside and play and their classrooms aren't dingy and there's no holes in the wall. Like it's a a very different physical physical environment, which we know affects how people work, even people. You know, people, adults, their work environment, their business environments. That's why businesses invest in making their companies look nice and feel nice because it definitely affects work production. And so it's the same for our children. If you give them a dingy building or cramped space, even our building was just redone, but they cut my classroom size in half and then gave me twice the amount of students. And so the physical space for my kids to move around—it's—it's almost impossible. We had to get really creative with our with our desk arrangements to figure out how we were going to fit 32 kids in a a room that looks like it could fit 15. I think it would be really interesting to ask 30 adults to have class in there day in, day out and see how they do. Definitely affects their learning.
3: Going back for a moment to teacher flight. So you've, you've mentioned that there are, you know, that you're, you're seeing teachers leaving the system in part, I'm sure, due to salary, you know, the, the salary gap. Can you describe a little more what this looks like from your end? Like how quickly, you know, how long are people staying usually? And what are some of the, like, what are some of the challenges that the system faces through this high turnover?
1: I'm so glad that you asked that question, because that's something that that's probably my biggest issue for myself and for my school. A lot of our teachers will stay for maybe one year, maybe two years, maybe three years. Um, I've been there for seven, and I'm one of the veteran teachers. I think when I hit year three or year four, I was a veteran teacher, and I feel like that's kind of a shock. I was I was four years in, and I was like, okay, why am I one of the only people who's been there for longer than six months? We've had teachers that have come in and quit within the first six months. I think we lost two or three teachers before December last year. And so teacher flight and teacher turnover is something that is greatly affecting our city. It's affecting our kids. It's affecting the school. Just at every single possible level, it affects our kids, and it affects us. In terms of reasons for teacher flight, so a lot of it is money. Um, I know a lot of teachers that have left because they're choosing to have, they want to have a family and they can't afford to have a family here in the city. So they're going elsewhere. Um, I know teachers that are leaving for other places in the Bay area are going to Palo Alto or Hulpebro or other areas where they're making a whole lot more money. They actually call that the $20,000 commute um, pretty well <laughs> known around here where you can literally go across one of the bridges and you're going to make ten or $20,000 more than you would teaching in San Francisco on an incentive-based, this is incentives. Like this is not rocket science. If you're going to make 20 grand more somewhere else, and you have a child or two children, you're not going to say, "No kids, I'm not going to give you a better life. I'm not going to give you more resources for me doing the same exact job, just move it over an hour east or an hour west." It doesn't make sense for people to say because their your pay is way higher not so far away. So a lot of it is definitely salary. I know that some teachers have left because they're not content with their school district or they're not content with their administration or or it's just time for them to go. Some people, you know, chose to leave the classroom because they want to exercise their um, intelligence and their resources in another way. But in terms of how it's affecting our kids, we if you're having people leave every single year or every two years you can't possibly establish anything that would that would improve the education for your kids. So, for example, our school is currently working on um, a method of uh, assessing students so that we can figure out how best to teach them and what methods to use and what strategies to use. And if you're starting that over every two years or you're starting these these policies over, you never gain any ground. It's like you're taking 10 steps t- backwards every, t- every step you take forward. And so in terms of um, your own school community and, and the – I don't know how you say it, but really like the the things that you're going for, the goals that you're setting for your school, you really can't get there if everybody's new every other year Um, or if people are leaving halfway through and you have substitutes that are teaching your kids for an extended period of time. I think one of our Spanish classes a couple years ago had a sub for almost an entire year. And not that all substitutes are bad. I've definitely had my share of great ones, but by no means is that a permanent teacher who's there and who gains experience and who knows Especially in our school, like our school is not an easy school to teach at. It's difficult. There are challenges. You have to be able to know what those are and and get the almost beyond on-the-job training to be able to be successful in your classroom. And so we're losing that. Every single year we're losing that, and it's definitely affecting our community and our kids. And and that's not just at our school. Many schools across the country are seeing this teacher flight, and it is really affecting our kids.
0: I have to imagine that in addition to the lack of continuity, the results from this high rate of churn on the administrative side, the cost to retrain new teachers constantly has to be non-trivial, right?
1: It's huge. It's like, yeah, it's huge. We think I feel like I looked up the statistic up about a year ago, and it was over. It was either like 11 million dollars or something per year or every couple of years that it costs Sam, just in San Francisco. And teacher turnover because then you have to reinvest in their training they need to go to all these professional developments and then you know the cost of of finding a substitute when they're when they're gone and then just all of the repercussions that happen when a teacher leaves and then having to retrain someone else the the cost is huge and it, it doesn't seem like it would be but from the outside it seems like oh you know somebody quits you get somebody new in. But teaching is not something that you can just walk in and do. Like it's not like oh, I think I'll go teach now. That's why a lot of I know Hawaii is is attracting a lot or attracting a lot of attention right now because I think it's on Facebook and on all these other social media websites where they're saying come teach in Hawaii, it's beautiful. And in my head, I'm like, are you guys crazy? Like the reason they have to do this is because their teachers aren't getting paid anything, anything, and they're all leaving. And this is not like a oh, I think I'll wake up and go teach today. Like, no, it's going to be effective. I'm not going to go wake up and be a brain surgeon and walk into a hospital and do surgery. Like, that's not going to happen, um, nor should it. And and I think it's really irresponsible of anyone to think, oh, I think I'll just go wake up and try this for a minute. Like, that that's a child who is going to either learn something from you or is going to shut down off of school because of you. Like, you need to, people don't, not everyone, but I think a lot of people that are responding with this, oh, yeah, let me go try it out and it'll be fun, like, Take it seriously, like know that that's a, that's a life that's in front of you that you could potentially alter for the better or for the worse. I think everybody remembers, I was just talking with my sensei the other day, and he still remembers the one teacher that he had that he could not stand and made him feel mm-hmm. dumb and made him feel bad, and, and he hated it. And so it really does make an impact. I think everybody still, I still remember the one teacher that was really horrible to me, and it, it carry, you carry it with you for the rest of your life. Um, and I even know a lot of people that they got turned off to school completely because they had somebody who wasn't qualified or wasn't, um, their heart wasn't in the right place. Their head wasn't in the right place. And so it really does make a difference. Like it really honestly, honestly does.
2: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
3: So you mentioned, Lena, uh, a a bit earlier and when you're talking, you're talking about sort of local testing and goal setting and, you know, kind of appraisement of that for your specific school and district. Now, earlier in the episode when it was just Xander and me, we were talking about uh, national and international scores. So we were talking about the NAAP and the ISPA. Um, so we have these like very broad level scores that we look at. I know Common Core has a lot of common testing. So we're able to see some of the you know just average results from those kinds of tests. And I know that when at least amateurs like us are talking about education policy, we're often talking about those high level scores. And I think that for me and probably a lot of our listeners, we don't really understand what's going on at the local level as far as assessment and planning. And so can you share with us a little more about what you guys are doing there and why you're supplementing the national level stuff with your own developed planning?
1: Yes. So I don't know if I can first kind of veer off and say this that I completely hate standardized testing, and I think it's a waste of time and a waste of money, and it does not in any way measure what our kids know or what they can do. Um, It kind of makes me sick to my stomach. I'm not the only teacher that feels that way. I'm sure teachers feel the opposite way, but there's a lot of reasons for that, which I'll circle back to later, and if I don't, please remind me. But in terms of our school, the local assessments that we're attempting to do at this point and that we've been creating over the last couple of years are basically assessments that teachers get together. As professionals, because we are professional teachers, we're really good at this by now, most of us, you get together and you try and figure out, okay, what do we want to assess for? What are we looking for? You create a local assessment. It's created by teachers, so in my eyes, at least I felt like it was a really great assessment. We were doing a writing benchmark, see what level our students were at in terms of their writing levels. And so we basically created the assessment, we created the topic, we created the prompt and everything, we created the rubric together, we scored the papers together, And was the process perfect? No. But was it better than some random person who's never been in a classroom before creating a test for a subject that they know nothing nothing about? Absolutely. Like, we were light years ahead of of where that person would be. Um, And that's the case with a lot of the standardized testing. The people that are creating these tests are, like, I think they're, like, statistical – they're companies that do, like, polls or they do, like – I think it was, like, a psychological – I don't even know what it was. But it wasn't an education company. It was not – teachers, not people that had been in classrooms or that were educators. And so they have no idea how to assess kids. So the types of questions that were on these traditional standardized tests were either completely inappropriate for the age level that they were asking. Some of them just flat out didn't make any sense. And it was a lot of the, you know, I'm, I'm not bashing Common Core at all right now. I like the idea of of kids. A lot of the idea behind Common Core is kids thinking for themselves and, and analyzing and being able to read something and analyze it and come up with an answer. But some of it is completely ludicrous. <laughs> um, and the topics that they're having read, uh, kids read about, I think that they had to read about like fly fishing in some country that they had never heard of before. And it just, it doesn't, good teaching, you, you build context, You you talk about the article, you discuss it, you unpack words, like All of the things that you do in a college-level classroom, like you go in there, you read it together, you unpack it, you discuss it, you ask questions, you create questions, you draw pictures. You do all of that together, or or even if you're doing it on your own, that's the process that you go through. But when they're giving these tests to these kids, it's the complete opposite process. It's not good teaching. It's not good practice. And so it doesn't make sense to me that that's what they're using to assess their kids. But back to our, our local school. I'm sorry. I know I'm veering off. That topic really gets me going.
3: Not at all. It's a comparison.
1: (laughs) But we basically create localized assessments and then assess our kids and see how they do. Based on their results, we then look at okay, how did you teach paragraph structure? How did you teach paragraph structure? What methods did you use? What methods did this person use? Compare them. How did your students do on this? How did your, you know, you're basically just looking at data collection. You're looking at what you did, looking at whether or not it's effective, and then you're changing your practice based on whether or not it works. And you have to change it every year. You're going to get different kids every year. Some classes you're going to get that you're going to need to do a lot more scaffolding. You're going to need to give them a lot more sentence starters, or you're going to need to give them a lot of word banks. And to other classes, you're going to not need as much of those things, and maybe you're going to need to give the kids a little bit more freedom, or maybe they need to jump up, up, and down every time they write a paragraph. It's different. It depends on your kids, and you have to be flexible, and you have to be knowledgeable enough to know what you need to do to help your kids succeed. You need to know how to teach. You need to know how to get to them. Our kids are not robots. And I feel like there's this push for uniformity and there's this expectation that, you know, our kids are all going to learn the same way. And and we know for years and years and years that they don't. And so while I think the idea behind it, I love the idea of having high expectations for kids and making sure that all of our kids are receiving a quality education. That's absolutely I think that's imperative to the success of a country, that our kids are all receiving an amazing education no matter where they live, um, which is actually what drew me to Teach for America in the first place. That was kind of their their motto, how they went about succeeding in that goal I, I had issues with. But, you know, their general goal I felt like was an incredibly important one to make sure that all of our kids are getting an awesome education. But standardized testing is not is not ensuring that there's actually no correlation from what I've read. I'm sure there's somebody out there who can get a pitchfork and a sign and completely disagree with me. Um, But (laughs) there's definitely no correlation as far as what I've researched myself between SAT scores and college graduation or between um, all of these, you know, the CST, the California standardized test and college level graduation. We have not even seen the new SBAC scores. I think it's called SBAC. I don't even actually standardize based something craziness <laughs> we have other acronyms for it that i don't know that i can say on a podcast <laughs> but, <okay. laughs> yeah i can switch this
3: one to explicit on itunes if i have to oh, that's okay. <laughs> just do your thing
1: <laughs> In case any of my kids are listening to this i don't want them to be like oh Miss Florida, potty man. okay fair enough um but they yeah they um there's def- there's not a correlation between kids success on these tests and their success Um, in college in terms of what I had read. I forgot the author's name. I have to ask a friend of mine. I read that book, and that's exactly what they had discovered. And it's – or at least the test that we're currently giving them, there's not a correlation. And so I have to keep asking myself and everyone else, as do many of other other teachers, why are we wasting our time on this? It actually takes – we had total – we had about six weeks of testing at our school. That's an entire semester. The amount that I can teach in six weeks, it already – we're teaching at, like, hyperspeed. Like, the amount of, of information and, and learning that happens in my classroom astounds me every single year. I have kids that will jump two years in reading, two years in writing. Like, the, just the progress that they're making is humbling for me. Because it's not me. I mean, people might say, well, you know, you're a great teacher. You're teacher of the year. No, it's not me. Any other great teacher that has listened to their colleagues and listened to their kids and cares about what they do, they can do this. It's hard, but they can do it. And and it's really, it's our kids who are are putting in the work and putting in, you know, the sweat to get there. So it's possible. We just need to not waste time on these things that don't matter for kids and don't further their education. I don't know anybody that went to college and was like, I'm so glad I took that SAT and learned what anti-disestablishmentarianism meant. That's great. Like, no, like they, you succeed in college for, for different reasons other than the fact that you took a test and you passed. Um, there's a lot of other factors that go into your college success or your success in life. I keep talking about college, but you know we're not just trying to prepare our kids for college. Not everybody wants to go to college, and not everybody wants to do that. People want to do different things, but you want to help them become the person that they're going to be, and and be a thinking human being, somebody who questions things, somebody who can read information and and have their own thoughts and be creative and maybe create their own company. Or we just we live in such an age where. Being an entrepreneur, is so much more possible with technology and with, you know, everything that we have now. God, I feel really old saying that, like an 80-year-old saying, you know, the technology <laughs> we have
3: now. Back in the day, we taught kids with sticks, and they liked it. <laughs>
0: <sighs> These kids and their Twitters. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, exactly. I can feel my kids rolling their eyes at me right now. I don't even know how to use Twitter or Instagram. Um, because digital literacy is, is just is way higher than it was when I was a kid. And just the power that that brings is incredible. And I, I want to equip our kids with all of that. And I think in order to do that, we need to not squash their creativity or not. You know, I've seen them myself. Like I wish all these people who create these tests would walk mm-hmm. into these rooms and talk to a kid and ask them how they feel when they don't get an answer right or when they don't understand. They, they feel dumb. They feel stupid. And then for the next couple of weeks, I'm doing like – triage trying to get my kids back on no, no 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 don't worry about that. Like let's worry about this amazing article that you just wrote on gentrification because you're brilliant and you're eleven and you know what gentrification is and you know how it affects you and you're writing an essay on it. Let's talk about that. Um it yeah. it's just it doesn't count like we have a kid I'm I'm saying that because we have a student who's reading at a first grade level who just wrote this amazing essay. I mean I typed it, she spoke it, but the standardized test doesn't allow you to do that it doesn't allow the kid to use technology that's available they have technology that you talk into it and it writes for you why not use it and it was an amazing essay it was it was brilliant and the fact that she's processing all this information and she's understanding it in the way that she's understanding it and she's able to comment on it that's not going to be reflected on the standardized test but then you know i'm reading this essay in my classroom and i'm like wow like she's she's brilliant she's on it she's getting it she's going she's on her way but she you know she would she would fail a standardized test. And so she's one of many, many students who are, who are who are in the same position. And so I think that these, but going back to localized assessments, that's why those are so powerful and so, por- so important, because we know who our kids are. We know what they need based on our assessments. We know as professionals how to get together and say, okay, I have this kid, this kid, this kid, this kid, what do I do? Um, and giving each other professional advice based on what we're seeing um, instead of somebody who's never stepped foot in the classroom, who's never stepped foot and who never doesn't know anything about education, how are they going to tell me how to teach my kids? Like how, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense at all to me.
0: Something else that's really struck me that, that I've, I've heard you discuss before is how much time teachers need to spend outside of the classroom preparing and grading. And it's just not something that I, I think that folks who are not in the educational industry really Think about, right? You know, you go to school, you teach, and you're done. Now, test scores are frequently used as a benchmark for student success, but they're also used to judge teacher efficacy and all of the work that gets done both in and out of the classroom as well. Do do you have any thoughts on perhaps how to better measure teacher efficacy or quality?
1: I do have thoughts on it. I don't have a solution myself. Um, I think that that's something that would be worth investing in is to kind of create a think tank for teacher efficacy. But in terms of an effective teacher at my school, if I walked into a classroom and I saw kids who were engaged or kids who were, even if a kid is having, you know, kids aren't perfect. They have behavior issues as well. They are little people. They're processing all these emotions and all these things on a day-to-day basis. They're not going to just sit quietly and raise their hand. <laughs> right? I mean, at this point, I think I we all we do, right? It's not, we're not robots. We, keep, we don't sit there and, you know, just do our thing and then leave. Things happen. And so an effective teacher would be able to deal with that in an appropriate manner and, you know, help a kid instead of having a kid shut down, helping a kid walk through it or, you know, have kids that go in with a second grade le- reading level and re- leave on a third or a fourth grade reading level. Like growth of kids on your actual, like, localized assessment or on your, you know, whatever writing assessment you have, that would show an effective teacher or a teacher who knows, like, we have a couple, I can think of a few students in mind right now, that that's not, that would create a goal that's appropriate for a kid. So when I say that, I mean that a kid might be coming to school and whatever is happening in their life at the moment is not conducive to them making any kind of academic growth. It's not, like, it maybe not, it's not that you would lose that expectation, But maybe your goal for that kid, which you would know to appropriately make based on your professional education and your experience, is to say, okay, my goal for this kid is that they last through the class today. They don't have a a meltdown. They don't have an outburst. We get through class today. Or we get through 45 minutes, and then they get to go, you know, being able to make those sort of goals for your students based off of where your students are, like meeting your students where they're at in their life and in their academic journey or in their, you know, social, emotional state. Being able to know where your student is and being able to help them get to the next level or help them become the person that they're going to become or, like, helping a kid find their passion, that's huge. I wish somebody had helped me find my passion when I was 11 years old. That would have been amazing. <laughs> but it's just it's, – that's such an important piece to education. It's a necessary piece, The relationship building. If I walk in and, you know, students have a, a positive rapport with their teacher, they have a good relationship. You are inherently more effective. If you walk in and you hate your teacher, you're not going to work for them. It's not going to happen, at least in my experience. Again, people might be totally telling me that I'm wrong, and that's okay. People have different experiences. People have different views. That's totally fine. But in terms of what I've seen, effective teachers, it doesn't just mean that your kid, you know, grew on a test or even in reading and writing. Hopefully they do, but, of course, we know there are other factors. And so maybe if your kid started coming to school and totally hated it, and then six months later, they didn't do a lick of work, but they were in that seat every day, and they looked forward to seeing you every day. Great, you've made a start. You've planted a seed. Now they're in school, and they like it. Now let's get to the point where we can get you to do some writing. Like, that's the this beautiful piece that people don't see. Like, our kids are people, and they're complex, and they're it, – it's complicated. It's not easy. But it's also something that it's, – it's a people skill. It's a human skill that you need to be able to do in, in, to, in order to be effective. Um, And so in terms of – being effective, I think those are the things that I would look for would be like relationship and how invested your kids are in school and the ones that are totally disengaged, like what? how are you going to help them? What are what are the things that you have in place? Um, being able to make a plan or, for a kid that is, is disengaged or is not doing so well, that to me is, is, is effectiveness because that's what's going to stay with the kid. If you're the person that the kid remembers as the person who – Believed in them and was was good to them and did everything you could to help them get to the next level. Whether or not you succeeded that year doesn't actually really matter in the long run because it's it's about planting the seed and about being a positive difference in the life of of a young person who may not other have that that resource in other areas of their life.
0: Yeah, that's that's some heavy stuff and it's a lot to take in, right? Because how do you evaluate something that is so subjective as? efficacy in transferring knowledge over such an extended period of time. But I think it's obviously critical to get input from folks who have been doing this for several years and who care enough to stick with, you know, what is a difficult occupation. So I have a question for you, Lena. So let's say you become ruler of the San Francisco Unified School District for a day and you have a blank check and unchecked authority to improve anything that you want to. What what does San Francisco Teacher of the Year think would be helpful? What would you do? Bill and Melinda Gates, listen up. Exactly.
1: <laughs> wow, that's a really awesome question. Um, and so before I answer that question, I know that all of the money that it would take to do everything that I'm talking about, I, I already know there's a lot of people that are going to be like, oh, we don't have the money for that. Taxes would be crazy. Let's just ignore taxes and where it's coming from. I know there's no such thing as a free lunch, but let's pretend that there is for a minute. Just for a minute, so I can live in my dream world for a minute. Let's do it. Um, so, for a blank check, I would definitely double teacher salaries at least, and admin, and anybody who is involved in improving the lives of our children and improving their education, they need to get paid a whole lot more than they're getting paid. If only because it is an incentive-based system. Jobs are, are based on incentives. So if somebody's going to come in and say, all right, we're going to pay you $100,000 a year, you're already going to attract the best and the brightest for that position. It's not going to be an easy position to get. People are going to stay up at night wondering if they can get into teaching school. And that's what we want. We don't want people that are just walking in because it's it's a job that's available. Um, it needs to be a job that they choose. Secondly, I would definitely increase, as we were discussing before, those wraparound services for kids who need them. I would Definitely make counseling available for all the kids who who are going through trauma or are going through um, an unstable time in their lives. That's something that's really necessary for them in order to achieve and to get an actual education and be able to walk into a classroom and learn. I would definitely invest in effective teacher training. And when I say that, a lot of our professional development time, although it is well intended and it is created by some, sometimes created by people who have a lot of heart and the subject, it's not effective. I don't know very many people that walk away from a professional development going, oh, that was so much fun, that was great. Like most of the time people are rolling their eyes and just can't wait to get out of there, and it's just a day out of your classroom. And I'm thinking all of the money that is wasted on days like that, the money that it took to pay me and pay for my sub, the money that it took you to print those 5,000 copies and the trees that you just killed
2: <laughs> from this
1: useless information, it's not it, it, the way it is now. I would definitely reinvest in professional development for teachers and make it more of an organic like okay like where are you at in your classroom what do you need to move forward or like what kinds of things do you want to learn about that's I think it needs to be geared more that way which would definitely take more money in terms of our quality even the quality of our food I would get my kids awesome food instead of serving them things that they maybe don't like or San Francisco's definitely come a long way but it could be even greater the facilities I would definitely invest in our in our school's buildings themselves. Even when we're doing construction, we have this beautiful building, it it still wasn't made in mind with having 32 kids in a classroom. I mean, I would, gosh, there we go, I'm glad I said that. Class class sizes need to be smaller. There's no way that a teacher can be super effective or as effective with 32 kids as they can with 16 or 20, um, which is a lot of the difference that you're seeing in public versus private education the class size makes a humongous difference. The amount of time that you can spend with 16 kids, that's when I saw my biggest growth is I had a freakishly small class. Um, and I think every teacher that's hearing this is, is silently cursing me <laughs> for having a class of 16 a couple years ago. But those kids made more gains than any other year that I've been teaching. Even on the, you know, evil standardized tests, they even did better on those because of Just the amount of growth that they had made in one year, it was across the board. And I directly attribute that to being able to sit down with each of those kids and talk about their learning, and I I had the time with those kids. So I think creating a situation with that money where there are smaller class sizes and there are more resources available and all of those dreams that teachers, you know, sit there and daydream about during these professional developments that they don't want to be at. (laughs) thats you know, that would be, I think, my my ideal situation where people are paid well they can live they can thrive they can take a vacation they can take a break and then they can go back into the classroom and kick butt um and in a place where kids have the services that they need in order to thrive in a building that is you know conducive to an environment that's conducive to to learning you know not having kids come to school hungry or or leave school having this huge issue on their mind that they haven't talked to anyone all day about i think that would be a really beautiful place to be
0: Awesome. I'll end with one question for you. You know, Eric and I here are ultimately students when it comes to education. We're trying to learn as much as possible. You being the expert, what questions should we have asked you that we have not yet asked you in this interview?
1: That's a really good, I think that you did a great job of asking me a lot of really important questions. Um, (laughs) Questions that you missed.
3: It's so nice when a teacher Um, tells you you did good. It just feels (laughs) so good. Great question, Eric.
1: Yes.
3: (laughs) Such a teacher's pet. Normally
1: in my, in our classrooms, I usually, they, that's actually it's something that a lot of times they'll do is they'll say, Oh, do you think this is, is this good? Did I do well? And, you actually want to take away that, like, approval. Like, I don't want them to want my approval. I want them to want their own approval. So do you think there's any questions that you missed, Sandra? Or are there any questions that you...
0: W- was that a Jedi mind trick? <laughs> oh, no. It
1: wasn't Jedi mind trick. <laughs> 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 you know, we that in teacher training school. It's all those, those Jedi mind tricks that we have. <laughs> um, so in terms of things that we missed, you know, I don't know that we missed it, but just, I think, circling back to that this is an incentive-based system. We're living in a country that we're saying that these kids are that our kids are the most important thing and that we want to invest in our education. And that the people, and I'm, I'm stealing this from Corey O'Rourke, who's an amazing teacher at Gateway High School. She was also, she's on the Teacher Salary Project, and she had said to you know, the people that were entrusting to do this job like that we're not going to compensate them and we're not going to make this something that has a, a livable wage or, or even like a, a, re, a retaining wage where somebody would want to come back and do the same thing all over again. And we want to keep our teachers in the classroom, especially the ones that are really good like i'm really really good even when I, I won this award i'm i don't say that to like vote or anything but like i'm good at this point i'm good and i'm getting better and i want to get better and i'm reflective and there are many educators out there who are powerful and are life changing for our kids and we want to keep them in the classroom we want to keep them with our kids and people are leaving because they don't have the financial means to stay here and and i think that is a complete travesty and everybody knows that it's happening that's why Uber and all of these other companies are, they had a commercial that was directed towards teachers. They were like, oh, teachers make a great Uber driver. They were directing that towards us because everybody knows that we don't make any money and that we need to work extra jobs in order to make ends meet. They didn't ask for lawyers, they didn't ask for a dental hygienist, you know, and, and a lot of times people ask me what I do. And I'll say, wow, like, thank you so much. And I'm like, okay, if I told you that I was an engineer, you wouldn't say thank you. You would just say, oh, wow, that's great. And then you would ask me a bunch of really cool questions about my job. Nobody asks me questions about my job. They just say, wow, you're so wonderful. And I'm like, no, it, that's what I do. It's a professional job. Like, I'm making a difference. And, yes, that's great, and I appreciate the thank you. But, like, there's this huge, even in a societal view, there's this huge missing piece to where it's like you're a glorified babysitter. And everybody knows that. <laughs> like, everybody it's this unspoken thing that, you know, people say, well, no, I really value my teacher, and I'm sure that you do. But as a society, if we really valued what was happening in our classrooms, you would see the pay rates go way up, and you would see it be a competitive job, and it should be a competitive job because that's our future. Like, those are our kids. They're the ones that are going to be running things. And if you really feel that way, if people really feel like teachers are important and they, they want teachers to stay, they need to make an incentive-based system to where people are going to stay up late at night, cramming for exams and trying to be the best that they can be so that they can become a teacher. And as it stands right now, I know that San Francisco Unified was, and I'm not trying to vilify our district. There's plenty of things about our district that I, you know, am appreciative of and that there's plenty of really awesome people in there. But we, you know, in saying that, they also were offering a job for somebody who was going to revise the credentialing program. And so when I read that, I thought to myself, hmm, we don't have enough teachers. We literally had to accept almost every single applicant that wanted to teach because we didn't have enough teachers to cover our classrooms. They're calling in teachers who have either retired or have moved on to become like a, a teacher on special assignment, which is basically they, they go and create, you know, they support teachers. They're having to call them all back in the classroom because we don't have enough teachers. And so if you're literally giving the job to every single person who applies, you're not being very selective. And I think that that's sickening, but that's happening. It's, it's It sickens me that we are just accepting anybody with a pulse to have a warm body in the classroom to this incredibly important job that that does make a difference in kids' lives. And so I think that if we are going to make some changes, then we need to start there because you're losing the physical people that you have in the classroom in order to make all these amazing things happen. Um, Everyone I mentioned this to when I was at the Teacher of the Year, ceremony i said to them hey you know this is great i'm here i won this award i have four jobs how are you going to keep me in the classroom i'm exhausted and i got a bunch of eye rolls and oh ha 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 that's horrible and then they walked away (laughs) i was like okay you're telling me that i'm the boots on the ground and i'm the most important one but you're not actually engaging in conversation about how to make this happen and i think that's a, a really a big missing piece so I, I don't know where the future of this is. I think I'm, I'm excited to be on Teacher Salary Project because I'm I believe in what they're doing and I I want to help them as much as I can. You know, if we're really going to see a difference in our public schools, we need to invest in our teachers.
3: I kind of just want to stay and keep talking to you for the next n hours, but you have four jobs and it is your just preciously short weekend, so reluctantly. I think, it, I think we want to let you go. I've learned so much. Uh, hopefully, our listeners have learned so much. So I want to say thank you so much.
1: Thank both of you, Xander and Eric, for having this on your podcast. It's an incredibly important issue. And the fact that you are reaching so many more people through this, what do you call it, through this venue, through this media, is is a really awesome step in the right direction. And I appreciate that you took the time to address this issue because it's really important. So thank you guys.
0: Well, thank you for joining us, Lena. So for those
3: of you listening, hopefully this has stimulated some thoughts for you. Uh, As I, as always, as I always say, Hey, if you're inspired, now's an opportunity for you to take some action. It doesn't take much. Go get in touch with your local city government, do the research, understand how the education system works and, just given how few people get involved in local government, you having some of those right conversations and getting the ball rolling could potentially make a really big difference for what you care about. And before you do, as always, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Stop and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. And this is
0: Xander signing off. See you later, Lena.
1: Bye, guys. Thanks.